Hello, this is Jeannie Poole, the Editor-in-Chief of the New Heart Rhythm Open Access and Online Journal. I'm pleased to present our first podcast for our inaugural April 2020 issue. The first paper is entitled Atrial Fibrillation Detection from RAW, Photopathosmography Waveforms, a Deep Learning Application by Dr. Kirsten Oshbacher and colleagues from the University of California, San Francisco. These investigators performed a study to determine how well a wrist-worn fitness tracker employing a deep learning algorithm fed continuous raw waveform photopathosmography or PPG data could reliably detect atrial fibrillation. They collected 12-lead ECG data and PPG data from a wearable wristband device, the Jawbone Health, in 51 patients undergoing DC cardioversion for atrial fibrillation. And the waveforms were used to build an AF prediction model. Patients had the wristband placed pre-cardioversion and 20 minutes of data was collected before and after the cardioversion. ECGs were also collected in 10 second intervals prior to and immediately after the shock. An 80% training test was developed with a 20% test set, which resulted in 72 hours of continuous PPG data. PPG data also was obtained in an additional 13 normal sinus rhythm patients during sleep, which provided another 91 hours of PPG recordings for the training model. Three models were tested using the area under the receiving operator characteristic curve, or AUC, as the primary performance metric. A traditional model using heart rate variability as a predictor in a logistic reject regression model. The second model was a single layer, long short-term memory LSTM neural network fed a series of 35 consecutive heartbeat periods as the sole input. And the third model was a deep convolutional recurrent neural net, or DNN, using the raw PPG waveform as the input. The results show that the AUC for discrimination of AF from sinus rhythm in the test dataset was higher in the DNN model using the raw PPG waveform with an AUC of 0.983 than in the traditional logistic regression model using heart rate variability with an AUC of 0.717. And it was also higher than the LSTM model fed only heart rate data with an AUC of 0.954. Sensitivity and specificity values were computed using a discrimination cutoff of 0.5. The positive predictive value of both models 2 and 3 were better than model 1, model 1 being the heart rate variability model, and quite similar to each other with a positive predictive value of 96 and 95% respectively for models 2 and 3. The negative predictive value for model 1 was 48.8% and for model 2 was 67% and for model 3 was 96.2%. The key findings that the authors offer are that a machine learning model fed raw PPG waveform data appears to more accurately discriminate atrial fibrillation from sinus rhythm compared to conventional heart rate variability measurements. And two, a machine learning model fed raw PPG waveform data appears to more accurately discriminate atrial fibrillation from sinus rhythm when compared to a machine learning model using heart rate information alone. The next study is titled Screening for Atrial Fibrillation in High-Risk Nursing Home Residents. The authors are Dr. Hassan Khan and colleagues from the University of Buffalo in New York. This study evaluated the use of the AliveCore, a smartphone-based ECG monitoring system in 245 high-risk nursing home residents without known prior atrial fibrillation for identification of atrial fibrillation. 15 nursing homes participated and patients with two or more AF risk factors, age 75 or greater, female sex, obstructive sleep apnea, peripheral vascular disease, diabetes, obesity, hypertension, 
or heart failure could be considered for this study. 30-second single lead rhythm recordings were obtained on each resident while awake on four different occasions and at various times over a month, though without a set interval given nursing home schedules. All rhythms were reviewed by a cardiologist and confirmed by a second cardiology or EP physician if needed. The decision to obtain multiple recordings was made because of the uncertainty as to how many such intermittent recordings might be necessary to document AF and also to screen patients at different times of the day and under different circumstances. Further evaluation and treatment was per the managing physician. Of the 245 residents screened, 156, or 63.7%, had an initial device interpretation of normal, while 64, or 26.1%, were interpreted as no analysis, and 25, or 10.2%, as possible atrial fibrillation. Of this latter group of possible AF, 52% were confirmed as AF. Of the 64 tracings interpreted as no analysis, 6.3% were confirmed as AF. Of the 156 tracings interpreted as normal, only 0.6% were confirmed as AF. In total, 7.4% of the residents had a diagnostic tracing for AF, and for most, this was picked up on their initial screen. The sensitivity for diagnosing AF with this approach was 72.2%. The specificity was 94.7%. The positive predictive value was 52%. The negative predictive value was 97.7%. Demographics or individual risk factors between the residents with or without atrial fibrillation were not significantly different. The authors conclude that intermittent smartphone-based ECG screening for AF in high-risk nursing home residents provides a higher diagnostic yield comparable to that observed in previous studies of intermittent monitoring in other populations. Screening of these high-risk individuals may be beneficial in identifying atrial fibrillation early and being able to therefore initiate appropriate treatment such as oral anticoagulation therapy. The next study comes from Dr. Schultz and colleagues from the University Hospital Heidelberg. The title of their paper is Spatial Relationship Between the Pulmonary Trunk and the Left Coronaries, Systematic Risk Assessment Based on Automated Three-Dimensional Distance Measurements. The topic of this study is the safety of catheter ablation for right ventricular VT ablation when performed above the pulmonary valve or within the left pulmonary artery. The purpose of this study was therefore to apply a systematic approach to analysis of CT scans in order to assess the distance between the entire pulmonary trunk and the proximal coronary arteries using a novel automated algorithm that the authors conclude allows for precise distance measurements within three-dimensional geometries. For their study, the authors retrospectively searched their patient population for patients who had undergone a triple rule-out CT scan between August 2014 and March 2018. Excluded exams were those with significant calcification or stenosis of the proximal left coronary arteries, low overall image quality, coronary anomalies, or missing clinical data. 58 patients' scans were available for analysis. 
The CT scans up until 2018 were 256 slice CT scans, and after that were performed with dual layer spectral detector CT. The authors provide details of the process of reconstruction and analysis in their paper. The results focused on 58 patients, 55% of whom are female, with a mean age of 62 years. The mean minimal distance between the pulmonary trunk and the left coronaries was 1.4 plus or minus 0.11 millimeter. On average, the closest relationship was located 13.8 plus or minus 0.87 millimeters above the pulmonary valve annulus. The height of those closest positions, however, varied widely and spread across the first three centimeters from the pulmonary annulus. The authors also looked at the distance between the pulmonary trunk and the proximal part of the right coronary artery, as well as the distance between the left coronaries and the right ventricular outflow tract, which were assessed within a subset of 10 patients. In this group of 10 patients, the authors found that the mean minimal distance between the pulmonary trunk and the proximal right coronary artery was 16.34 plus and minus 1.28 millimeters. None of the patients exhibited a distance below 10 millimeters. The mean distance between locations within the right ventricular outflow tract region located just below the pulmonary annulus in the left coronaries was 6.3 plus and minus 0.34 millimeters, with none of the patients exhibiting a distance below 5 millimeters. The authors additionally look at the location of minimal distance in order to assess if different regions fall within a safety margin for ablation. To do this, the first three centimeters of the pulmonary trunk were divided into segments, zero to one centimeters, one to two centimeters, and two to three centimeters. And then they looked at the percentage of patients with a critical distance between the pulmonary trunk and the left coronaries. The most critical regions were identified as the anterior aspect of the lowest part of the left pulmonary sinus cusp and the area between one and two centimeters above the nadir of the left pulmonary sinus cusp. In more than 80% of the patients, a safety margin of four millimeters of distance could not be maintained within these two critical segments. The authors found no correlation between the height of the minimal distance and common clinical parameters such as age, body weight, height, or body mass index. The authors conclude that by applying a newly developed mathematical algorithm for automated distance measurements within three-dimensional geometries, they were able to systematically determine the distance between potential ablation sites within the first centimeters of the pulmonary trunk and the proximal coronary arteries. The next study comes from Dr. Arkels and colleagues from the University of Pennsylvania. The title of this paper is Wire Countertraction for Sheath Placement Through Stenotic and Tortuous Veins, the Body Flossing Technique. This paper addresses the issue of lead addition or replacements for pacemaker or ICDs and the challenge of venous stenosis or tortuosity due to prior interventions, the presence of in situ lead and lead replacements. The authors describe a procedure to overcome these challenges and successfully place an ipsilateral transvenous lead. Briefly, in this procedure, simultaneous two-point traction is accomplished by snaring the distal end of a guide wire from the femoral vein, while a second operator then works in the pocket, providing a similar degree of counter-traction, providing a firm rail to advance sheaths over the guide wire. The authors performed this body flossing procedure in 10 consecutive patients in whom sheaths could not be advanced over guide wires due to stenosis or tortuosity. Venous access was obtained, preferably from the axillary vein, with upgrading of wires to an extra support wire such as the 035 extra stiff 
and Platt's wire. For patients with complete stenosis, lead extraction was performed and venous access retained using a similar extra strength wire. Then the usual approach of upsizing sheaths would be tried and venoplasty at the discretion of the operator. However, if ultimately the sheath could not be advanced beyond the stenotic or tortuous area, then the operators moved on to the body flossing technique. Femoral access was obtained, and then through a 7 French sheath, the operators advanced a 20 millimeter Amplatz gooseneck snare to grab the distal end of the wire in the right atrium or inferior vena cava. With counter-traction from below, then the operator at the pocket would attempt to advance the sheath, while the operator of the snare would try to maintain the distal end of the wire in a stable position in the low right atrium, or IBC. If the latter could not be maintained, then the distal wire would be pulled out through the femoral sheath and secured with a forceps snap. If the latter approach was required, then at the end of the procedure, the wire would be removed via the femoral sheath to maintain pocket sterility. The authors report that this approach was successful in all 10 consecutive patients, with 11 leads placed, which included 5 ICD and 6 pacemaker leads. The patients had an average of 2.7 plus and minus 0.8 pre-existing leads present, and the dwell time was 12.0 plus and minus 5.4 years. Three patients required lead extraction, and in another two, venoplasty was performed. The procedure was performed quickly with an average time required to snare the wire of only about six minutes. No complications occurred during the procedure or over a follow-up period of 30 months. This study shows that a counter-traction approach, which the authors have aptly named the body flossing technique, is a useful addition to the armamentarium of techniques which can be used in tough cases when faced with venous stenosis or tortuosity. The benefit of this technique is an opportunity to avoid other approaches such as implanting leads on the contralateral side with tunneling across to the pocket or placing an entirely new system on the contralateral side. This approach may have the advantage to limit the need to perform a lead extraction, use less appealing venous access approaches such as femoral medial subclavian vein distal to the area stenosis or a supraclavicular venous access approach. While patients now may be candidates for leadless pacing or a subcutaneous ICD, many will not be appropriate for these novel devices, and therefore this technique may help to facilitate the placement of leads in veins with in situ prior leads. The next study is titled, A Novel Screening Test for Inappropriate Shocks Due to Myopotentials from the Subcutaneous Implantable Cardioverter Defibrillator. This is authored by Dr. Yudi Ishida and colleagues from the Hirosaki University of Graduate School of Medicine. The background for performing this study is the effort to reduce inappropriate shock rates occurring in the subcutaneous ICD. Readers will know that the original SICD studies and registries showed that T-wave oversensing was the most common reason for oversensing, which has been decreased with improved algorithms. However, another cause of inappropriate shocks can be that caused by myopotential noise, this study evaluated a novel tube exercise test in 43 patients who received an SICD. So as the reader will know, there are three sensing vectors available in the SICD. And in this study, all patients had their final programming sensing vector chosen by the implanting physician. The testing method used standard exercise tube bands. These were used for 
horizontal stretching, lifting up of the arms while stretching the band horizontally, and thirdly, a vertical stretch, securing one end of the band with the foot and pulling then vertically upward with the hand. During these exercises, the SICD EGMs were recorded in all three sensing vectors, which were then assessed for device-detected noise. Patients were then followed for inappropriate and appropriate shocks. During the tube exercise test, 28% had detected noise in at least one vector. Clinical characteristics were compared with those with and those without noise, and no clinical characteristics stood out as being different. However, those with mild potential noise were more likely to have had the three incision versus the two incision implant technique, 75% versus 39% respectively. Overall, there was no difference in the noise according to the sensing vector. However, when looking at just exercise one, which was the horizontal stretch, noise was more common in the alternate vector compared to either the primary or secondary vectors. Over two years of follow-up, seven patients, or 11.3%, had an inappropriate shock, three for noise and two for a supraventricular tachyarrhythmia. All three who had noise also had had noise on the tube exercise test, and no patient without noise had an inappropriate shock, providing a sensitivity of 100% and a specificity of 79%, with a positive predictive value of 25%, and a negative predictive value of 100%. In multivariate analysis, the three incision technique was predictive of myopotential oversensing, although Kaplan-Meier time to event was not statistically significant. The authors discuss that this type of arm exercise can be useful post-implant to assess for myopotential interference. If no noise is observed in any specific vector, it is unlikely that an inappropriate shock due to this etiology will occur. The explanation for why the three incision technique was more likely to be associated with noise is not clear. While a small study, however, these observations provide an additional helpful and simple clinical test that can be done to mitigate inappropriate shocks. This next study comes from the Department of Population Health Sciences, the Division of Health Informatics at Cornell Medicine, New York. Dr. Megan Turchio and colleagues present a paper titled Review of Mobile Applications for the Detection and Management of Atrial Fibrillation. The background for this study is the increase in available free mobile healthcare apps. While broadly available and thereby appealing, these apps have not been evaluated in the same rigorous manner as medical grade monitors. The use of photoplethysmography, or PPG, as a surrogate for AF detection has gained widespread interest. Therefore, the purpose of this study was to systematically review and evaluate existing mobile apps with PPG functionality according to four criteria or assessments. The first was based upon quality using the Mobile Application Rating Scale, or MARS, which includes 23 questions across four categories. These four categories are classification, behavioral change, objective quality, and subjective quality. The second measure was functionality based upon published criteria from the IQVIA Institute for Healthcare Informatics, which measures seven measures of functionality. The third measure was adherence to evidence-based guidelines for AF management, and the fourth was a rigorous evaluation of apps in published research. 
The authors searched within the three major app stores for apps with PPG for heart rhythm detection, and these needed to be patient-facing. The three app stores were Apple, Google Play Store, and Amazon, and a total of 12 apps were identified to evaluate. The 12 apps included the following, AF Companion, AF Manager, Beat Scanner, Cardiac Diagnosis, ECG Check, Everbeat, Go Heart, Heart for Heart, Heart Rate Monitor ECG Pulse Tracker for Cardio, Heart Rhythm, Photo AFib Detector, and Cardio Heart Health. The majority of these apps could be found in the Apple Store, followed by Google, and the least in Amazon. All of these apps were free, and five of them also had upgrades available for costs that ranged from $3 to $79. 75% of these had privacy policies. So what were the findings of this study? Regarding the Mars assessment, which used a five-point Likert scale, less than half of the apps, or only 42%, had above average quality with an overall Mars score of 3.0. The top-rated apps by total MARS score were AFib Companion, Cardio Heart, and Photo AFib Detector with MARS scores of 4.1, 3.6, and 3.3, respectively. The AFib Companion was the highest-rated app in three domains, which included functionality, subjective quality, and information. Only three of the apps provided medication management information, such as reference to oral anticoagulation. These were AFib Companion, Everbeat, and Cardio Heart Health. Eight of the 12 apps provided symptom management and four provided information on lifestyle management. None of the apps had an intervene functionality, for instance, that would send an alert. None of these apps were identified in any of the three major publication databases, PubMed, Scopus, or the ACM Digital Library. The authors summarize by noting that they found a wide variability in the objective quality and the functionality of the commercially available AF applications and the degree to which they align with self-management guidelines. The authors suggest that greater attention to quality, functionality, and guidelines during the app designs and development is needed. There is an opportunity that such technologies could become even more readily available and provide an improved strategy for detecting and management of atrial fibrillation. The next article is our first topics in review. This article was written by Jason Andrade from Montreal Heart Institute, Department of Medicine, Montreal, Canada, and is titled Cryoablation for Atrial Fibrillation. Dr. Andrade has provided a comprehensive review of this topic. I will just share with you the key findings and refer you to the article. The first key finding is that decreasing the cryoablation dose results in significantly shorter ablation procedures and left atrial dwell times, with reduction in fluoroscopic exposure, mostly related to omission of the bonus freeze. The second key finding is that dose limitation strategies have not been definitively proven to reduce the rates of complications directly related to cryoablation. And the third key finding is over-reduction in cryoablation dose may compromise efficacy, particularly in relation to ablation of the left pulmonary veins. 
The final two papers are in our category called Perspectives in Contrast. And here we have two groups of authors arguing and presenting data and video images that support their perspective that either his bundle pacing or left bundle branch area pacing is the best approach to physiologic pacing. Arguing that his bundle pacing is the best approach to physiologic pacing, Drs. Upadhyaya, Rasminia, and Tung from the University of Chicago support their perspective by pointing out that only his bundle pacing results in complete recruitment of intrinsic left conduction system activation. They also note that the available clinical evidence for his bundle pacing is far greater than that for left bundle branch area pacing. They note that there is a lack of definitive evidence and criteria for capture of the left conduction system and that generalizability of left bundle branch area pacing is unknown and largely untested outside of China, particularly in the presence of septal scar and ischemic substrates. Providing the contrasting perspective is Drs. Padala and Ellenbogen from the Department of Cardiac Electrophysiology at the Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond, Virginia. These authors support their perspective, noting that left bundle branch area pacing overcomes many of the limitations that have been previously noted with his bundle pacing. They identify that the large anatomic target side is technically less challenging, it's easier to fix the lead, and has shorter procedural and fluoroscopic times, and also note higher success rates. They argue that this approach improves the ability to preserve or improve LV synchrony. And they also note, importantly, that the more stable lead parameters with left bundle branch area pacing argue strongly for this approach over his bundle pacing. We invite you to view these two articles, including their step-by-step -step approaches to achieving physiologic pacing. Thank you for listening to this podcast today, which summarizes the April 2020 edition of Heart Rhythm Open. You can access all of the papers discussed today at www.heartrhythmopen.com.